Coronavirus and the Global Economy. What's next? This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD and the Institute of Global Affairs at LSE. Hello and welcome to this joint event from the London School of Economics Institute of Global Affairs at the School of Public Policy and the Office of the Chief Economist in the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. What's next? That's the question on all of our minds now. Businesses, employees, governments, financial institutions and everybody else. People like you and me, we're all asking that question. My name is Jonathan Charles. I'm the EBRD's Director of Communications. Today, I'm joined by the EBRD Chief Economist, Beata Yavorczyk, also Professor of Economics at Oxford, and three of her distinguished colleagues, some of the greatest and most influential economic brains the EBRD has seen, and possibly even on the planet. You can take your own view of that at the end of the, uh, the, end of the hour. Uh, Lord Stern, Professor of Economics and Government at the LSE. Eric Bergloff, the Director of the Institute of Global Affairs at LSE and Professor of Economics and Sergei Guriev, Professor of Economics at Sciences Po in France. All three are also former EBRD Chief Economists. They're also all members of the EBRD Alumni Association. I welcome all those alumni from the EBRD, by the way, who are watching this. Uh, this event is being streamed live on the EBRD Facebook page, as well as uh, via Zoom. Uh, we are, of course, all speaking from our individual homes, uh, and you're probably watching from your individual homes, as is the way of the world these days. Uh, before we start our discussion, a few pointers for those of you joining us on Zoom. Please make sure you don't unmute yourself. Please keep your camera turned off so our internet can manage the hosting of all of you who joined us on Zoom. It does obviously take more bandwidth if you're in vision. Uh, you can put questions to the panel in the chat box. Uh, introduce yourself when you post your question in the chat box, by the way. Uh, and we'll be asking uh, those uh, questions to our, to our uh, panel. Uh, if you're on Facebook Live, uh, post your questions in the comments uh, section. We're going to spend about 45 minutes of this session with our panelists, and then we'll open it to your questions for the last half, half hour or so, uh, roughly from about quarter to two to 2.15. So, plainly, the economic and political impacts of the coronavirus epidemic are growing more dramatic as every day passes. Millions of businesses and the jobs they support are under threat. Civil liberties in many countries are being drastically curtailed as governments fight to control the spread of COVID-19. How will it change the global economic system? And what does it mean for globalization as we know it? Well, I'm going to ask the panelists for their quick take, first of all, on the biggest challenges uh, we should expect as a result of coronavirus and the immediate aftermath. What comes next is the question. Uh, Beata, let me ask you first. Thank you, Jonathan. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a great pleasure to join these distinguished panelists for a conversation on the post-COVID world. Let me say a few words about the pandemic and globalization. COVID struck at the moment when globalization was already weakened by the US-China trade war, the World Trade Organization is weakened, and there was already uncertainty about the future of free trade. Free trade. Now, during the pandemic, we observed restrictions on exports of medical supplies. And then, as currencies of some emerging markets plummeted, we observed restrictions on exports of agricultural products. Countries were worried about food inflation at home, so they started restricting exports of wheat and rice and other uh, goods. Now, at this point, I understand that there is no reason to worry about shortages of food. However, if these restrictions cascade, 
we may see a spike in food prices. And that's something that's going to hurt lower income people in advanced countries and particularly in food importing developing countries. But these export restrictions are very worrisome because they may have long-term impact. They could be used to justify protectionism. And this argument um, of restricting trade, whether import or export, on national security grounds may resonate with the public. The, during the initial stages of the pandemic, the public has seen images of shipments of masks being blocked or being seized by third, part, third countries. And in 2018, you may remember that the US used national security exceptions to introduce tariffs on aluminum and steel. And in this way, it has paved way for others to follow. And these are exceptions that are allowed under the WTO. Nobody used them before because everybody understood that once you use them, the floodgates may open. So we may see globalization being rolled back at the point when we will need open markets and free trade the most during the time when the economies will start recovering from the crisis. And protectionists can make bouncing back from the crisis more difficult. So at this point, it's very important for the international community to start thinking about the post-COVID world. Just like in July 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference, so that was almost a year before end of World War II, powers, great powers were thinking about the economic order after the war. We should already be thinking about the economic order after COVID, and we should be reaffirming some of the key principles such as free trade. Thank you. Beata, thank you very much. Uh, Nick Stern. Thank you very much. It's a, a great pleasure to see so many friendly faces <clears throat> flash across the screen as uh, people um, signed in. Um, I wish we could be together, but we will find a way uh, to do it, which is in addition to the virtualness of this one at a later date. This crisis is uh, immense and uh, it is going to require a very strong response. The, it, that strong response has to have a sense of direction, action, leadership, and hope, and it has to be collaborative. And I hope this is the type of um, uh, interaction which could help create that kind of spirit of action, leadership, and hope and collaboration. I think it helps to think of it in terms of three parts moving from now. First part is rescue, second part is recovery, and the third part is building a better world, a world that's strong, sustainable, inclusive, and resilient. We can't go back to the old normal. The old normal is, uh, was deeply dangerous, and it's very important that that is clearly understood. First part then is the rescue, of course, the medical rescue, which uh, is fundamental, but rescuing the economy means trying to prevent uh, an implosion, and in particular, looking after um, the most vulnerable groups in the economy, and I would put at the top of the list the importance of sustaining employment. Some countries have done that better than uh, others, but the destruction of human capital from unemployment could be very long-lasting if we let this happen. And the principles of justice and fairness 
if we're to keep the, the polity and the social fabric together during this rescue phase, it's going to be very important. Then we move into recovery. We will have seen a very sharp drop in output around the world. The developing world is going to be particularly badly hit, and that's coming. It's not just the medical and economic crisis, which is bad enough, but they've seen a flight of capital, falling commodity prices, collapsing remittances. The developing world is going to be deeply uh, damaged here, and the international collegiality, mutual support, is going to be of fundamental importance. But in that recovery phase, building back from the slump, which we're going into, it's very important to recognize the loss of confidence, the indebtedness, and the liquidity that are going to be necessary. So a clear sense of direction, uh, strong policies which can pull through investment, we can discuss what they are, will be fundamental here, and um, a lot of liquidity, particularly for smaller firms, which are going to be really tested here, but not only for smaller firms. We're going to see, I think, tax holidays of various kinds, rent uh, holidays if you're going to get people back to work. And the upshot of that, of course, is going to be very substantial uh, government deficits. And that's something which we have to recognize and accept. And we have to rule out a slip back into austerity uh, right from the beginning, because otherwise that confidence could not uh, be there. It was a big mistake we made after the uh, crisis 2008-2010, and we must rule it out early if we're to put together the investment climate that we uh, need. So if austerity won't get us out of the big deficits and debt, it's going to have to be growth, and we're going to have to put that at the top of the list in the recovery phase. But it's going to have to be a new form of growth, one that is much more sustainable and resilient than the growth that we saw in the past. Uh, a lot of the dangers from the next pandemic will be about relationships between wild animals, domestic animals, and humans. Wild, wild animals are meeting themselves, particularly birds, in different ways as a result of climate change. Lots more nasty viruses coming that way. So rebuilding the natural capital, which is of course vital from the point of view of sustainability more generally, is also of great importance in avoiding the next uh, pandemic. So building the recovery phase as the transition to a much more attractive form of growth is fundamental to the strategy of building back better. I'm fully agreed with Beata. We've got to come out of this with the spirit of building back better, building a better world, not slipping back into the old one, which has shown itself to, to be so fragile and uh, dangerous and unequal. And that has to be strong leadership, but it also needs those who work in economic institutions, on economics and so on, to show what can be done. Just as Keynes worked to show the vision of the better world, but also the technicalities of how that could be realized. We know that it can go either way. After World War I, we went into two decades of darkness because we didn't have the leadership and we didn't have the actions. After World War II, we picked up in a much better way as Beata has described. So we have to recognize that it really can go either way. And that puts, as it were, the obligations on us uh, still more firmly. Thank you very much.
Nick, thank you very much indeed. Uh, just by the way, someone sent me a message saying, are these comments on the record? Yes, they are on the record. Uh, because we are going out live on Facebook. So uh, these are on the record comments. Uh, Eric Bergloff. Thank you and, and absolutely delighted to be part of this reunion of sorts. And, and of course, at the time, that provides a, a very difficult backdrop, of course, but also um, a lot of opportunities for creative thinking. I think we're going to need a lot of that. And, and I will build on what Beata and, and and Nick was talking about, I'm going to focus on the, the role of the international financial institutions as I've been thinking about those uh, over the last uh, few years. And, and um, as both Beata and, and Nick said, you know, these can end up in either way. We know that uh, it's a very difficult relationship uh, emerging between China and the United States. We saw the problems, even of agreeing on quite straightforward things within the uh, European Union. But I, I think there is also a tremendous upside that we can really make use of this crisis to, to get much more out of these international uh, financial institutions. So, so I think we can do that by showing what it can deliver or what they can deliver in this current crisis. And then as we come out of it, draw the right lessons and for how, how we should um, reform them. So, so yes, to emphasize that the, you know, the crisis that we are facing now is, is a combined medical emergency and an economic emergency. And actually for many of the countries where EBID works and, uh, and, and in the, throughout the developing world as well, the, um, you know, the economic crisis hits before the virus in a way, because the virus has not really taken hold in many, most of these countries, it's, it's still ahead of them. And they are hit by the things that, that Nick described, you know, the, the collapse in, in uh, commodity prices, the uh, collapse in remittances, the, um, the uh, capital outflows and, and, and so on. So all those things uh, are hitting the, these countries before they even have to deal with the medical emergency. And of course it impairs their capacity to address that medical emergency. And uh, also, the, we know that this crisis will only be solved if we do have a global response, because if this virus gets endemic in Africa or any other part of the developing world, or even maybe in the emerging world, you know, we will have to live with uh, constant outbreaks. So we need to address <clears throat> the medical emergency, we need to address it globally, and we need to understand the interaction between economics and, and, and the medical side. The, uh, you know, so we have these institutions that were set up to deal with these kind of situations. And, and um, I think we are lucky because the, the IMF got some additional resources in, in the global financial crisis. The, the, uh, the development banks have recently, some of them been recapitalized, some of them have some additional uh, capacity. So we have something to play with in the beginning. And, 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 and I think both the World Bank and the IMF and the regional development banks have all responded you know, quite actively, aggressively. But I hate to say it, it's gonna be, much more will be needed to, to get, this, get this right. And even with the, these resources that they have been granted, these institutions, we will need even more uh, going forward. So I maybe can come back to the, uh, in the discussion later on, what concretely, but it's, it's really about boosting both the IMF's uh, firepower, the World Bank's firepower, and see what we can do with the, um, 
with the regional development banks. And very importantly, in the end, we also need to bring in the private sector into this because we need it both, I think, in the end on the liquidity financial stability side and on the development side. And, uh, you know, each institution is going to be pushed to the limits and, and you know, we some of us lived through this at the EBRD, uh, you know, in the global financial crisis. And I think we showed at the time that we could change the way we worked and we, we could deliver on, you know, very difficult things, but it was not always comfortable. We had to go beyond our comfort zone and we will need to do so again in, in these institutions. I think it, just to summarize, I think, you know, we, when we come out of this, I think we will have stronger uh, institutions. We'll have uh, a, a um, more a system that is more prepared. You know, when we worked on, on this in the eminent personal group and uh, this uh, wise persons group, it was very much this kind of crisis that we had in mind. And I think what, what it teaches us is that we need to think about these things together, the global financial safety net, the development finance architecture, and the capacity of the private sector to help uh, boost the resources of the institutions. They have the networks to channel resources into the economy. EBRD, for example, has an invaluable network of banks that can be used, and a valuable network of uh, local corporate clients that can be used, and of course, links to governments that they can work with. So I'm very hopeful that this crisis can leave us with stronger institutions and, and uh, you know, a, a better preparedness for the next uh, pandemic. Eric, thank you very much indeed. And uh, last in this round, uh, let's hear from Sergey Guria. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And I'm also happy to be back to see many familiar faces, many uh, former colleagues. I put on a tie as I'm back to the BRD. I don't get to wear a tie often, not just in the confinement, but also in my <laughs> academic life. Um, but uh, in general, what I wanted to talk about here is the political uh, fallout of this crisis. Uh, one thing which actually may make uh, me a bit more optimistic uh, is that this crisis shows many people the importance of expertise and science. And I think people will come out, out of this crisis with more respect for the experts. Why this matters is because the wave of populism that we've seen before this crisis and after the global financial crisis in particular, uh, the populists define themselves as people who fight the elites, fight the experts, don't recognize the value of uh, rational thinking. And um, this is uh, the crisis which shows the importance of experts, importance of science, and importance of what President Trump would call deep state, namely qualified, professional, uh, ethical civil service. These are the countries which have good um, uh, civil servants managed to deliver a very effective response. We also see in particular that uh, many populist governments actually fail uh, in, in fighting this crisis. We see that countries led by populist leaders do not deliver on um, timely and competent response. And so that kind of makes me a bit more optimistic that when we come out of this crisis, there'll be more rational uh, policy framework in general and more trust from the public towards institutions, towards uh, mainstream politicians, towards centrist politicians and to the experts. This is not necessarily going to happen because populists are very good in spinning their message 
And so communications aspect of this is very, very important. But still objectively, this crisis has shown how important rational thinking is, crisis is, and so on. So another dimension is the divide between democracies and authoritarian states. Uh, this divide is of course not very uh, clear. Some countries which are classified as democracies have built authoritarian uh, political regimes as uh, not being an IBRD employee. I can say that some IBRD countries of operations are effectively authoritarian. And some of them are using this crisis to grab more um, control over civil society and media and privacy. And so the big uh, post-crisis battleground will be to get those rights back to make sure that uh, governments do not uh, switch into wartime regime and uh, don't retreat after this wartime, really wartime scale crisis is over. We also see that in this crisis, uh, while there are returns to control state, we also see the big deficiencies of control state. We see how China didn't manage the uh, response to the crisis well in the very beginning, exactly because they don't have decentralized free media. And uh, that may result in a situation like in 2002, 2003, during the first SARS epidemic, when the central government doesn't really understand what's going on in the ground. And the whole system suppresses information, suppresses feedback. So we also see that today in the biggest country of operation, Russia, where the, the, the so-called vertical of power built by President Putin over the last 20 years is not very effective in providing uh, uh, response to the epidemic. So we see that there are some uh, good things in uh, free, in freedom, democracy, especially in media freedom and, and uh, vibrant civil society, even in times like this. Now, another aspect of uh, the populist surge of the last uh, couple of decades, and especially over the last decade, was of course distrust towards multilateral institutions that Eric was talking about. And I think it is exactly now when there is a chance for multilateral institutions, including World Health Organization, including IMF and the World Bank, and of course, IBRD, to show that they matter, to show that they can deliver, to show that they can change the game. And I think uh, we will see a lot happening in the next couple of days in virtual Washington DC annual meetings uh, when this response will be formulated, announced, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually reasonably optimistic for the reasons that uh, Nick and Eric were talking about. Developing countries cannot afford what developed countries did. Developed countries rolled out fiscal packages of 10 and 20% of GDP, which is the right thing to do. This is the, as I said, wartime challenge, war, war, a scale of uh, wartime. Um, and so running wartime deficits is fine. The problem is that not every country can do that. And this is where multilateral institutions really, really matter. And uh, if multilateral institutions uh, stand up to this challenge, they will come out stronger out of this crisis. So let me stop here. Sergey, thank you very much indeed. I mean, very interesting themes that all four of you have uh, laid out there, many, many different themes. One thing I noticed that you all touched on in one way or another was the question of leadership in the what's next scenario, either leadership on a country level or on a multilateral international level. Uh, and I think clearly you're right, but my worry is that we haven't really seen that for the last few years. Uh, there's no, and we haven't seen in this crisis what I describe as a big sort of G20 moment 
uh, in the way that Gordon Brown, when he was British Prime Minister, for example, convened the G20 in London for a response to the financial crisis. Uh, so I, I wonder what you'd say to leaders to persuade them that in a way they need to change their ways and adopt a much more international approach if the world is, is due to go forward. Because clearly without that, it will be very much a national basis and probably not as effective. Um, Beato, what, what would you say to leaders in the what's next scenario? In the case of a pandemic, no nation is an island. And if there is one nation on the globe that still will have COVID, that will make all of us vulnerable. So therefore, is in our, it is in our collective interest to get rid of the pandemic. And the only way to do it is to collaborate. There is simply no other way, simply because you know, we cannot close the borders and isolate ourselves completely from the rest of the world. Nick, do you think leaders have got it in them to rise to the occasion? I, uh, I hope so, um, but it's our job through discussion and interaction to help them to do exactly that. I would uh, build on what Beata has said, which is about the importance of collaboration for the world as a whole, and I would look to individual leaders to try to show how uh, important this moment could be for themselves and their country. This is a moment where China and Europe could get together and lead. I guess, at least from the point of view of the White House, we will not see world leadership from its current occupants. But I do think that this is a moment where Europe and uh, China could and should get together. It's a moment for collaboration because as well as the world needing it, I think both regions, Europe and China, could see this as an opportunity for them to help shape the way in which the world looks over the next 20 or so years. The uh, Prime Minister Modi has often spoken of India's uh, century and there's a lot in that. India too will be the president of the G20 uh, from the end of next year. I would appeal also to uh, Prime Minister Modi to recognize that this is an opportunity to uh, worry less about tensions uh, with China, to see India as not as an inward looking nation, but as an open looking nation. So appeal to collaboration, but also to some element of self-interest uh, for their own country in shaping the next steps in the world. Africa too will be very important in that context. Interestingly, Cyril Ramaphosa, Cyril Ramaphosa in South Africa has uh, been one of the leaders who has emerged in, in a way that is really uh, the, the manner of a statesperson. Nick, thank you very much. Uh, Eric? Well, I think it's, it's quite understandable that you know, governments and leaders in individual countries have been sort of taken aback and, and, and uh, got very worried about, by, by, about what's happening to their own populations. And, and you know, I think it's, it's natural and, and it's uh, sort of unavoidable. And, and what we need to do, and I think all of us on this panel have been involved in one way or another, trying to uh, put pressure on leaders to take a broader view and exactly for the reasons that Beata was mentioning, you know, that the pandemic is actually in a way a beautiful illustration of, of why this collaboration is needed and why 
the weakest link matters so much. So it's understandable, but we have a tremendous responsibility, particularly I think also in these international financial institutions to try to push um, the envelope. And, and what is difficult and it's kind of a systemic, systemic problem in, in this institution is that when, as we have seen now, so the shareholders are behind the curve in, in, in many ways. And uh, it's, it's not so easy for the institutions to push ahead because you know you can suddenly find yourself if you are a president of an institution like this hanging there and with no backup from from shareholders and that's a very uncomfortable position and i've seen it in a number of, of situations and and that's why this uh, appeal to g20 leaders and this is where that leadership matters so much because they can take a responsibility they not of course they only control about half of the votes of these institutions but they, they represent a massive uh, power in terms of of, of, uh, of the economy behind them and so on. So we we need to see the 20 uh, finance ministers met, met yesterday and I think they took some valuable steps that will be more things coming in the next few days. It won't be enough but I think something like a response and a global response is, is we're starting to see the contours of that and, and again we'll have to go through a, a lot of new ideas and, and what seems sort of impossible two weeks ago is possible today. What seemed impossible today will be possible in three to four weeks. So we, what we need to push and, and help these institutions uh, and, and including EBRD, of course, to, to um, raise their game. Eric, thank you very much. Uh, Sergey, you're in France and I, I was struck in, in the context of this sort of question, that even people who I'd normally see as multilateralists, uh, like President Macron, I noticed in his speech, one of his speeches the other day, he was beginning to talk in some areas about the need for French uh, self-sufficiency in some areas. So, so he seemed to be torn between uh, multilateralism and a national approach to the economics of the future. Yes, uh, as a person, the only person on the panel uh, speaking from within European Union, I can tell you that in the early weeks of the crisis, it was clear that EU was actually late and slow, and actually, especially on the communication side, some of the things EU was doing was much bigger than people knew. But uh, indeed, during this crisis, it is natural that uh, politicians are accountable to their voters and the nation state matters so much, especially in developed countries where nation states have enormous fiscal space due to their ability to borrow in current environment of zero interest rates. So it is possible for France to roll out a 10 or 15% of GDP, GDP fiscal package. It is impossible to do that for the European Union, uh, whose total budget is 1% of EU, or EU uh, uh, GDP. So by definition, the Commission is much less important in this game. Yet things are happening. And again, I agree with Eric that it is slower and smaller than it should have been. But last week, the Eurogroup in its historically unprecedented, uh, precedently long meeting still came to an agreement which was beyond what many people expected. And the Northern part of the European Union actually participated in a deal uh, which was probably something that we'd not expect without this crisis. I would like to would like to have seen more, 
but that has not happened. And yet uh, there is progress from within the EU and leaders of uh, member states agree to things they wouldn't have agreed uh, without that. But of course, I think nation state will come out stronger uh, from this crisis and there will be self-sufficiency in many uh, countries as a policy goal. So we'll see, I think, stockpiles for the next pandemic, but that doesn't mean that globalization will completely disappear, especially in the BRD countries, which have seen that foreign direct investment and trade is a major engine of prosperity. I think nobody in our countries of operations will go back and say, we want other care. The first uh, uh, threat to globalization now comes from the West, not from the East. Thank you very much indeed, Sergey. Um, just a reminder, by the way, to everybody uh, watching that in about 10 minutes or so, we'll come to your questions. Keep sending them in. Uh, and they'll be passed on to me and we can ask the panel some of your questions as the audience. Uh, let me turn to another issue. We are looking at what's next. You know, what is likely to be the, the outcome of all of this? And on the what's next, one thought strikes me quite heavily, which is about where does the balance lie between the role of the state and the role of the private sector in the economy? Clearly, at the moment, we're seeing a massive, in many countries, big state moment, because the state is the only actor big enough to, to be able to intervene in the economy in the way that's required. But where, what happens now to that going forward? And, and to me, the context for all that is, you know, I've certainly detected, I'm sure you have as well. In recent years, there's definitely been in some countries more of a, a shift towards the state and the state expecting to do more in the economy and people expecting the state to do more. Uh, so, so where do we go in the post-coronavirus world in that balance between state and private sector? Beata. Sorry. Um, so as, as you said yourself, um, the, there has already been trend towards a growing importance of the state. Um, so one of the things that COVID did was it exposed the weakness of gig economy, of um, zero hour contracts and so on. Um, flexibility in the labor market is very good. Uh, if the times are good, it helps the economy be more dynamic. But during a major pandemic, a major crisis like now, it, you can see the weaknesses of the system. Essentially, it's only the state that has the ability to ensure people uh, against such rare risks. And what we saw in the last couple of decades was pushing the risk away from firms onto workers. And I think when the crisis is over, we are going to have a conversation about labor markets, about how we want to structure labor markets. Um, we have seen that uh, in places where people are not entitled to sick leave, where they have limited access to healthcare, they continue working. And in this way, they, they sp speed up the spread of the disease. Um, we are going to see probably some nationalizations uh, as some sectors or firms are being bailed out. The state will take uh, an equity share in them, so there will be more firms. This is particularly worrisome in countries with lower governance standards because these nationalizations may lead to cronism, to using state ownership for uh, political purposes. So that's something we need to be watching out very carefully. Um, finally, the crisis will deepen inequality. 
because um, people working in service sectors, people working those lower paying jobs are hit harder either because they had to stop working because they are on those less advantageous contracts or if they continue working, they are actually exposed to the virus because they are in those um, vital sectors. Um, so we will see increase in, a, in inequality within countries and across countries. Um, and there, there will be more dissatisfaction and this could actually um, create an opening for populist leaders. So while the earlier messages we've heard on this panel were very optimistic, actually the world is at crossroads and we don't know whether we will go the, the good route or the less desirable one. Thank you. Let's hope we've got a good map. Thank you very much indeed, Piazza. Uh, Nick, the balance uh, in future between the state and the private sector, the role of the state. Thank you very much. Um, on that very last note that Beata struck, I, I agree very much. We could go into uh, deeper darkness or we could come out of this much better. It's our job to not to be pessimistic or optimistic. It's our job to shift the probabilities by the kinds of ideas we put on the table, by the kind of ways we carry ourselves and bring people together. And obviously the state plays a fundamental part of that, a fundamental role in that whole story. I think it's useful to think of the state as protecting and promoting. There's some things it does to protect, something it does to promote, and there are other things that it does to build sense of community and solidarity, which I think are vital uh, in this, uh, all the phases of recovery, rescue recovery and building a better form of growth. On protection, um, I agree very much with Beata that a big part of that uh, protection is around employment and uh, the destructive nature of unemployment for any extended period of time we've seen as being absolutely profound and fundamental. So keeping people at work is not simply to sustain incomes, it's also to sustain future productivity and the ability to grow. And as Beata emphasized, in a gig economy, uh, that's particularly difficult. And we have to get better at that and probably in the future have a bit less uh, big gig economy, but it won't go away. So we have to think about how those um, incomes can be uh, protected. Part of protection, of course, is public health as well. And surely if we've seen anything from this, the importance of managing public health better and getting universal access to healthcare is of fundamental importance. And those are key to the solidarity of uh, nations. And that's a word which I think we shouldn't be frightened to use. We're going to need that kind of solidarity and community cohesion if we're to uh, manage the rescue, recovery, and better growth phases uh, in this whole story. So that is a big part of the role of the state. And um, as uh, we've all been mentioning, during and just after the Second World War, there was conscious direct thinking about that. The Beveridge Report was before the middle of the war. The Bretton Woods, Con the Bretton Woods Conference was before the end of the war. So now is the moment to be thinking of the kinds of societies, institutions that we want to build back out of that and uh, do it in a way that gives hope and emphasizes solidarity and uh, equity in the story. Um, on the promotion side, I don't want to go on too long, but I emphasize the protection side with the role of the state. 
the promotion side of the role of the state, we have to keep the private sector at center stage because that they will be the drivers of growth. The fundamental challenge here is to recreate an investment climate. And we do that with a clear, a clear. direction of where the economy uh, must go, a clear commitment to a new, new type of growth, a clear commitment to the policies that are going to draw the necessary new investments through and to demonstrate that the right kind of finance is there on the right scale at the right time. That is, of course, what graduates of the EBRD are particularly good at. <laughs> Nick, thank you very much indeed. Okay, let me turn to another graduate of the EBRD. Uh, Eric, uh, big states, is, is, in your mind, is it, is it inevitable that for a while we've got a big state and, and that will have this dominant role in the economy? I'm actually not too worried about this in, uh, in advanced economies. I think that it will result the, as, as, in, as, as Beata and Nick were saying, in a kind of rethink on, in some areas, labor markets, may, maybe some reforms in the health sector will be uh, rethought in, 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 this, in the light of this experience. But it's not surprising that the, when you have an epidemic or a pandemic that uh, the sort of public good trumps the private uh, rights and so on. And that, that's very natural and understandable. I, I think the institutions are strong enough in these countries to, to recover from that. And maybe actually the, um, you know, in some countries like the US, for example, might actually have a, an improvement in terms of, uh, for example, the coverage of its health system and so on. I'm much more worried about how this is going to play out in the emerging and developing world. There was a very interesting op-ed by uh, Amartya Sen this morning in the FT, which I think kind of illustrates it, he points to, on the one hand, the experience that Nick was referring to with the beverage report and what happened to um, you know, many countries after the World, World War II, to what happened in, in India. And, and uh, you know, there are some very serious issues about both what Sergei was talking about earlier, the, um, the risk that governments that use this to, to put in place um, Sort of more authoritarian uh, rulership styles, and and you do that, uh, you know, for a much longer period than than uh, the um, the epidemic uh, justifies. But there's also going to be, I think, a dramatic realization of the limited state capacity that many of these countries have, their inability to deliver in so many areas. You know, that could go both ways. But I'm worried that this could lead to, you know, massive populist uh, reactions and, and, and uh, possibly weakening of whatever um, elements of democracy are, are in these countries. So, I mean, there is a hope that we will draw the right lessons, uh, I think, from this, but, but there's also the very real possibility that uh, in, in many countries, this will be a step back for um, both for democracy and possibly for private sector activities. I, I think on the, when you think about looking forward and, and the sort of big global challenges that uh, we are facing together, you know, not having the private sector involved is going to be impossible. So, so we, we will need, and, and, and the private sector will need also a strong state to, to be able to, to play that role. But, but I think it's in that combination and that's also again where 
I think the graduates of, of EBRD have uh, have some thing uh, to to teach uh, the world also. So let's let's see what what the end result is. But I think on on in terms of collaboration between the private sector and, and the the public sector, I think we we can draw some hopefully draw some positive lessons from this experience. Eric, thank you very much. Okay, EBRD graduate Sergey Guriev. Thank you very much. Uh, I uh, fully agree with Beata that uh, inequality is an important issue and indeed the experience during the crisis is very different for people with uh, bigger flats and smaller flats with uh, higher skills and lower skills and one of the things which we may learn uh, from this crisis is that technology is not only increasing inequality, it may also mitigate inequality. So many kids, even in developed countries, don't have a good internet connection at home, don't have a computer at home. And in that sense, uh, if uh, governments need to think about something, is how to probably partner with the uh, private sector to invest in digital infrastructure. And that's especially true in developing countries, in the BRD countries, especially outside of big cities. And uh, that is an important lesson that I think all societies will take from this crisis, that investment in technology may be one of the priorities for the government, probably jointly with the private sector. Overall, like Eric, I'm not too worried about uh, uh, developed countries nationalizing and not reprivatizing. We saw that in the crisis 2008-2009 when governments temporarily privatized companies that went bankrupt and then reprivatize them. I think this is what's going to happen as well, especially given that governments will have to repay debt that they will have accumulated during this crisis. So I think uh, this is not my biggest worry. I would also point to one interesting thing which uh, has not been mentioned today, is many governments now rolled out universal basic income programs or something like that. Uh, Actually, almost no country rolled out a full universal basic income program, but many did something like that. And that has demonstrated that this may be the simplest and most effective way to support the most vulnerable. And that may actually create a momentum for moving to a new instruments of uh, supporting the left behind, the most vulnerable. So in that sense, I think, that may be indeed takeaways from this crisis that can rebuild welfare state like the beverage report we mentioned today. So in that sense, there are silver linings we can see in this crisis. Thank you very much, Sergey. Well, all of your answers actually lead us quite neatly onto some of the questions that we've got from the audience. Um, we've got dozens and dozens of questions. I don't think we're going to have time to do very many in 20 minutes, but let, let's start with this one. because It does follow on from some of the comments you've been making. It's um, from Matthias Brugman from Handelsblatt, uh, the newspaper. He says, what do you expect in terms of nationalization as a result of the economic crisis due to the corona pandemic? Which governments will nationalize companies? Uh, and he quotes the Polish deputy prime minister as stating, to get companies under control and get the foreign investors out. Uh, so, you know, it's an interesting uh, take on nationalization. Uh, rather, I expect you don't want to necessarily talk about the Polish example, but how do you see the nationalization question, Beata? So certainly there will be nationalizations done out of necessity when you prop up sectors or big firms um, 
because you want to prevent them from going background. But there may be underhanded nationalizations done for political purposes. And they are not going to happen in Western countries. They are going to happen in countries that are less democratic, in countries with weak institutions, and they will be used uh, for policymakers, by policymakers to entrench themselves in power. I mean, as Sergei mentioned, um, in our countries of operations, most of the people see the benefits of openness. They see the benefits, they have benefited from trade, they have benefited from inflows of foreign direct investment. Um, so in a sense, it's not, uh, it's very sh uh, short, it's very myopic um, to try to push foreign investors out because that is going to be costly in terms of long-term growth. As Nick was saying, that what you want to do now is to create good investment climate, to bring investment. So pushing investors out are exactly what you do not want to do. So countries that pursue such strategies will pay for it in terms of lower growth. Thank you very much. Let, let me turn the question on its head and maybe one of the others would like to come in. And if you turn it around the other way, you could argue, of course, that in the what's next at some stage, there are going to have to be more privatizations because governments are going to have to raise money in order to deal with some of their spending of the, of the immediate response to the crisis. Anybody got a, a view on that? You want to put up your hand or? Uh, Nick, first of all, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's very important um, <clears throat> that as we talk about the uh, increased role of the state, which there's no ambiguity about, it has happened and it's going to be with us for quite some time, is we do not confuse that with the ownership of the means of production. What we're talking about is protecting people, uh, protecting uh, jobs, that's the protection side, creating opportunities, that's the promotion side. And there, it seems to me, the role of the state has been enhanced by this. We see it already, and that will stay important in the recovery stages. So to distinguish that from ownership, I think, is very important. And I agree very much with uh, Beata that you could end up with something that actually deters investment by uh, taking hold of, um, uh, of, of assets in what looks like a gratuitous an opportunistic way. Some things might be accelerated. We've probably taken a step forward to railway renationalization in the UK already as a result of all this. That may be an acceleration of some things that were coming anyway. And that's something where many of us um, probably would recognize that whether you have railways in the public sector or the private sector is an open question. And many countries do quite well by having them in the public sector. But that's a feature of a particular place at a particular time. The broad story, I think, is one where we have to recognize the role of the state, particularly in promoting and fostering investment. And that is not necessarily done by, uh, by nationalization. It is done, I think, uh, the promotion of investment does happen through a vision, <coughs> a credible path that we set for the economy uh, as a group, but I let me just in that uh, report to you. Some of you would have seen it. The G20 finance ministers meeting yesterday. They said that ministers committed 
to support an environmentally sustainable and inclusive recovery and be guided by a sense of shared long-term responsibility for our planet and citizens consistent with the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and national local development strategies and relevant international commitments. That's a vision of where you want the economy to go. It's a framework in which investment can be fostered. Of course, you have to make specific policies and institutions. So I would emphasize the sense of direction for private investment, the willingness to find liquidity in these straightened times for private investment as the best way to drive the economy forward and steer away from a, a, a nationalization story. Let, let me just uh, pick up on that then, Nick, because uh, one of our questions addresses really that goal of what sort of economy uh, we should be aiming for. Uh, Mattia Romani uh, from the EBRD says, is this a moment where with all this economic stimulus going into uh, economies, that there's a room for a tilt to green actually in the sort of economy that we want to build in future? In other words, one of the opportunities uh, that arises out of this challenge. Well, Mattia knows the answer to that question. Thank you, Mattia. It's a bit of a loaded question from Mattia. <laughs> Mattia should give, should give it himself. I've just given a clear yes to uh, the answer to that question. And it's not a hobby horse story. We've learned in this about the enormous fragility of a society and an economy that neglects its natural capital, that neglects its environment, that creates conditions where these kinds of viruses can a, come into existence, and B, come to greet us. And uh, that is, as I said right at the beginning, uh, that neglect of our natural capital, that disturbance of the relationship between wild animals, domestic animals, and human animals that creates viruses and allows their transitions. That's just one example. Of course, what we could do to ourselves with climate change would uh, be much bigger and long-lasting. There's no vaccine against climate change. Eric, Sergey, where do you see the opportunities for green and all of this? Well, I think there is, is understandable and, and important not to confuse it uh, at this point. I mean, I think now every, the whole focus has to be about saving lives. But as Nick was saying, you know, very quickly, we can start thinking about how we can make use of these um, changes that we're seeing. And, and even, I wouldn't rule out that, you know, some of us have been uh, made aware of the, for example, the poor quality of the air in London, you know, how much it has improved by having so much less traffic. And, and uh, you know, that's even more dramatic in places like uh, Beijing or, or in Delhi and so on. So I'm, I'm not saying that this is ne necessarily going to be uh, that wake up call, but at least it, it might expose some people to, to necessity of, of, of driving this. And of course, Nick made the very important link between uh, the climate and pandemics. And, and I think that hopefully this experience should also bring that out. So I think we, you know, as with any crisis, we will, when we restart and then when we come back, you know, we need to be very conscious of, of how we are using both um, you know, the public resources and how we get to promote, as Nick said, the, the private sector's reorientation and, and moving on the whole sustainable development agenda. Can I just clarify on that, uh, Jonathan? I fully yep. agree with Eric that the rescue phase is the rescue phase. Mm. It's about jobs and livelihoods 
and it's not the moment in these coming weeks where the um, story of um, uh, environment uh, protection would be the dominant story. We should be careful not to go backwards, but the dominant story is the rescue. And I should have said, there's no vaccination against the effects of climate change. You can prevent climate change, we might have to do that. Uh, what I wanted to emphasize is that when it comes, there's very little you can do uh, and, and other than a few defensive um, adaptation responses. Uh, we can act to prevent it occurring at all, or we can act to reduce its uh, influence in a very profound way. And that's of course underlined much of what most of us have been saying. Nick, thank you for that clarification. Sergey, that's one of the interesting points, isn't it? Governments are going to have to keep their eyes on multiple timelines in their response to this. The immediate, but at the same time, not losing sight of some of the other challenges. Yes, if you talk to the governments, usually you would give them this advice, not wasting a good crisis, put together a rescue team and then a long-term reforms or uh, green response team saying this is the long-term agenda, this is the rescue stage agenda. The problem is that in many developing countries and many EBRD countries, capacity of policymaking is very, very limited. You don't have 20 talented teams to put 10 into short-term uh, line of work and then 10 for the long-term line of work. And this is where institutions like EBRD can be very, very important, providing policy advice providing ideas and helping to implement those ideas. The other thing where developed and developing countries think differently is the uh, way in which uh, what is obvious for Mattia and Nick may not be obvious for some other policymakers or economists in emerging markets. In Europe, the last two court summers make it obvious not just to policymakers or economists, but also to ordinary people, that climate change is not a hoax, whatever President Trump would have said. Um, but uh, in developing countries, uh, people are much more aware of the need to fight uh, extreme poverty today. And uh, when oil prices are low, the economic incentives may actually point to the wrong solution. And in that sense, uh, it's not an obvious decision what uh, Nick and Mattia have been talking about. And these countries have, be, have to be helped both idea-wise and financially, because the financial considerations uh, shift them in the direction of fossil fuels, which are extremely cheap. Now, some, uh, some of you have seen that, but uh, in recent weeks, we actually saw negative oil prices so this is something that, of course, in many of those countries suggests that uh, fossil fuel is not a good, uh, fossil fuel based development is not a bad idea. Uh, so a green, green technology may be uh, too expensive. So these countries have to be provided economic incentives, but also ideas how to implement green stimulus, green recovery in the right way. Very good. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Sergey. Um, Beata, did you want to say anything on this? Um, sure. Just to follow on what Sergey said, now may be a good time to uh, build awareness, right? So in the ancient times of January 2020, um, COVID-19 was a Chinese problem. Before we knew it, it was 
it became our problem. So the fact that not everybody sees climate change happening, does it mean that it's not happening? And it's very disappointing that the, the whole discussion about climate change has completely disappeared from the headlines. And I think, you know, it's our job, among others, um, to talk about it. And let me also comment on tilting to green. Uh, the choice of words is not random. It's, it's not taking money away from other worthy causes. It's about steering it towards green causes. It's about nudging. It's about encouraging disclosure. It's about encouraging public scrutiny and awareness. Because we do need to be, build public uh, support for this. I mean, unless we get buying from the public, this agenda will go nowhere. Thank you very much. Um, let me put two questions together now, actually, because there is a link between them. There's a question, first of all, from Melissa Engelhardt, who says, what will be the ability to cope with the debt burdens in the economy in the long term? And what's the effect for younger and next generations? And the other question, Philip Tavort, are panelists worried about uh, possibly high inflation consequences uh, from uh, all these financial support packages? So there's a bit of a connection between those two questions. Uh, Beata, first of all. I think first things first. Right? We need to worry about supporting people in need. We need to worry about recovery. Now is not the time to, to worry about debts. But you know, the, the brutal truth is we will be accumulating debts. Um, but as Nick was saying, um, once we start recovering, we shouldn't go into austerity. Um, because we saw how detrimental it was um, to the UK and perhaps had there been no austerity, uh, you know, many of us would be now sitting in a European Union country. Um, on inflation, um, again, I, I don't think now is the time to worry about inflation. Um, I just want to point out that one of the important factors that kept inflation low in the recent decades was international trade. So if we go towards protectionism, we will pay for it in terms of higher inflation. Debt and inflation, Nick. I, I agree with Beata on that. The biggest risk uh, is that we slump and stay in a deep slump as a world for a long time. The political, social, economic health effects of that would be devastating. There's no unrisky way out of this. But I think not acting strongly, uh, not borrowing, not using monetary finance, that would be the most risky strategy of all. And uh, if it leads uh, eventually to um, problems with inflation, then let's take those on when they come. Uh, let's not uh, worry too much about that at the moment, because if we let it dominate, we will uh, be very destructive. If you think about the future generations, if we don't act strongly now, we destroy assets, we destroy human capital, we unravel firms which are real assets, which should be uh, staying uh, intact. So that is actually through the human capital that gets destroyed by not strong enough action, through the firm capital that gets destroyed through non, uh, through hesitant, uh, weak action. That is the most destructive for future generations. 
So surely we are thinking of future generations, but that means acting strongly, not lapsing back into austerity and having a clear view of what sustainable, resilient growth looks like. And I would disagree just a bit with uh, Sergei on that. I think for most countries now, the most attractive form of growth is the low carbon growth story. Already in most countries in the world, even at these kinds of prices, you're seeing renewable energy being cheaper than uh, the alternatives. And of course, if you're investing in infrastructure for the next 10 or 20 years, you know, negative oil prices is probably not a good prediction of where they're going to go. Low prices, yes, but uh, not that low. And so I do think that economics should see this as about dynamic choice. What kind of paths are we going to follow? What kind of um, development patterns are we going to commit to? How are we going to promote the sorts of investments which could make those things happen? Those are the big challenges. And a narrow short-run trade-off is not necessarily well, expressing it as a narrow uh, short-run trade-off. It may not be, indeed is not the right way to think about the choice of growth paths that we need. Thank you very much. Um, actually, we need to move swiftly on. Let me ask some more questions. Uh, Eric, there's a question for you from Paolo Salza. Uh, what ideas have you got in mind to leverage the investment capacity of the multilateral development banks? You talked about international institutions stepping up, doing more. Uh, how do you think that should happen, Eric? Yes, and, and I, I was deliberately uh, vague on that because um, I didn't want to get drawn into too much of a details on, on in, in my introductory remarks. But I think there are a lot of ideas out there that can, can be looked at. And I think the, the basic idea would be to see how can we move the global financial safety net, so the IMF and the regional arrangements, closer to the development institutions. And there you can think of things like uh, providing liquidity backstops. You know, the, the multilateral development banks are now punished by rating agencies for not having access to those uh, liquidity backstops that uh, commercial banks have. So thinking about how can we build uh, such things? Uh, EIB already has it uh, to ECB. There could be other forms of uh, contingent capital. So we, you know, we have this paid-in capital, callable capital. Maybe that could be an intermediate form like what the European Stability Mechanism has, which is a, a, um, a, a kind of equity can be, can be called for liquidity purposes. I think, I think this crisis illustrates why we need those kind of facilities and, and why uh, you know, the rating agencies have actually been cautious uh, in their ratings uh, for, that for the lack of, of those resources. So, and, but ultimately, of course, what I think will be needed, and, and, and this goes for both the, uh, the IMF and, and, and the, the multilateral development banks, it's about crowding in private capital and finding ways, probably IMF, and it's going to be a tricky discussion, but I think in this crisis that you may have to explore ways for the IMF to go to the markets. There are issues with that, but it, it, I think it could be done. I think it's in the same way we need to think of creative ways. I know EBRD has tried some ways and, and I think we need to think about uh, new ways and, and, and maybe better ways of, of bringing uh, private uh, and, and not only private sort of institutional capital into uh, development and that I think is is the future and and in that way also uh, strengthen the multilateral development bank. 
Eric, thank you, you very much. Coming on oh, the sorry. SDRs, Eric. I mean, you, you've been pushing very strongly, and I completely agree with you. I'm with you on this is a moment for the IMF to step up and uh, take a lead with uh, SDRs, and that the use of those SDRs could be with the right kind of agreement from the rich countries, particularly for the uh, developing countries. So this is a moment, I think, for the IMF, and you've been arguing very strongly for that. Thank you very much. We're uh, running out of time, but let me ask this question to anybody who wants it. It's actually aimed at Nick, but I think everyone will have a view on this. What about uh, Belt and Road Initiative debt levels? How are they going to look after COVID? Uh, how do you think China will respond? This is from Isabel Hilton, this question. And I think what Isabel's getting at is, is are we talking about debt forgiveness here? How's all this going to be, going to be handled? Uh, let's go around the room. Uh, Nick, then, first of all, as it was uh, you, you were the initial addressee of this question. I think, um, picking up on what uh, Eric was saying, we need a big issue of uh, SDRs and we need a debt standstill for developing countries on payments. Uh, it'd be, as their economies uh, plunge, what you don't want to happen is them to have a, a much bigger debt pile uh, that they owe at the uh, end of that story. So I think a period of debt standstill, and it's going to be, have to be followed, I think, at some point by debt restructuring. You don't get a plunge like this without the need to look again at the debts of uh, developing countries. And China will have to play a part in that. I think it's crucial that they do. That's part of their role in uh, world leadership. And I said that directly uh, at the beginning of this week in an uh, open webinar for the China Development Forum. It's critical that in this process of debt, standard, debt standstill and subsequent debt forgiveness, that China plays a strong role because through the Belt and Road, and these have been investments that have been important in the infrastructure in the developing world, but they have involved debt. That debt is there. This is a moment when debt, which might have been sustainable, becomes unsustainable. All parties have to get together, including the private sector, uh, around that story. So begin with a standstill, then look at the question of uh, debt relief, and China must play a central role. This isn't a moment to go uh, nattering on about moral hazard and so on. We're in a crisis. Thank you. Sergey, then Nick, uh, then Eric, sorry. Yes, I fully agree with uh, Nick. Um, this is the uh, right time for China to uh, help the borders, BRI borders. And uh, China now is in a express need for improving its reputation, uh, investing in its soft power. We see China's already doing that in Europe in particular. So I think, I think there are strong incentives for Chinese leadership to actually help BRI countries through standstill and indeed through potential debt relief later on. And indeed it's not a moral hazard issue, it's an issue of unexpected exogenous shock that hit the border. So I think, I think China has both means and incentives to do that. Eric. Yes, I agree with, with what has been said. I think the, the issue here is, is kind of interesting because it teaches us something about China is that you know, China is not the monolith. So, so some parts of the Chinese government, the, the central bank and the Ministry of Finance have been very keen to engage on these issues of, of, of debt uh, forgiveness or debt uh, moratoria and so on. What is the problem though is that a number of the institutions that have been actually providing this 
debt or this lending to, to these countries are uh, report directly to the Chinese State Council and have, are very independent. And, and so a lot of these issues are actually internal Chinese issues. And, and what I think we should do as, as uh, you know, external and EBRD, which uh, talks a lot to, to Chinese uh, authorities, you should really uh, support those parts of the Chinese uh, government and the Chinese apparatus that wants to engage with the international institutions, we that want to be part of uh, cre finding creative solutions to this problem and, and to other uh, problems. I think that's, you know, how that battle uh, plays out is gonna be incredibly important for the future. So I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of opportunities for Europe to work with China, but it has to, of course, China has to play, play ball, so to say. China has to acknowledge that uh, there are you know, they have not been living up to certain standards on, on debt sustainability, for example, uh, even before this shock. And, and, and one needs to draw lessons from that. And again, there is a big internal debate in China about, uh, you know, what, what happened and, and how to get out of that situation. So I think many lessons and, and many opportunities to, to find sort of more constructive ways of, of uh, moving forward. Beata. The issue of debt forgiveness restructuring goes beyond developing countries. I mean, most likely Southern Europe will need to think about it as it accumulates debt. I think we need to learn from the Greek experience. It's much better to resolve things faster rather than slower. And I think the Greek experience on how the international community handled that situation offers uh, some lessons. And the second lesson is, you know, we should be putting more emphasis on debt transparency. Countries should be open and they should be publishing information on what debt they have. And that's something the World Bank has been pushing quite strongly for. And as it turns out now, that was actually the right thing to do. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for all those audience questions. Um, let's end with a few concluding thoughts, some very swift concluding thoughts from the four of you one by one. Maybe we should look ahead. You know, if we're two years on from here, if hopefully the virus has died away by then or vaccine has arrived, which, uh, which allows us to have a, a certain immunity from it. What does the economy look like two years down the road from now and the global economic picture? Uh, let's, let's go around the other way this time. Sergey, why don't you go first? Well, it's uh, very hard to predict what the world will look like in two years. Uh, we still are in the midst of a major crisis, which is just starting in emerging markets. Um, and uh, in that sense, uh, I guess the best uh, prediction is the status quo as usual. But uh, in general, there'll be much more debt, as uh, everybody has said, and uh, much more emphasis on uh, public health and resilience, um, building buffers against the next, next pandemic. And a lot will depend on how costly the crisis is for the developing countries. And that may actually depend on what decisions are made in virtual Washington DC over the next couple of days. And uh, in, that sense, in that sense, there is still a huge uh, level of uncertainty about the future. I think it's normal that uh, we rely on government in, in uh, in the midst of the crisis. This is a textbook example of why government is needed in the market economy. But uh, I, I also don't see a danger that we will live in a command economy 
uh, two years from now, at least in advanced economies. So there will be no West European EBRD or US EBRD needed in two years. I think these countries will transition from government control to market on their own in the course of the next couple of years. Thank you very much. Eric. Well, the first thing to say, I think that there is just so much uncertainty about what's going to happen. I'm working a lot now with people in global health and, you know, you go through all the different dimensions of this uh, sort of the biological side of this, you know, the, the immunity, will there be immunity, how long, you know, for, for whom and, and, you know, will what will happen to vaccines, what will happen to antivirals, what happen, you know, all these things are unknowns. And, and uh, I think we just have to prepare ourselves that this uncertainty will be with us for quite some time. Yes, we may have a vaccine and that, you know, it may come earlier than most people expect. That would be, you know, a definite uh, game changer. But even having that vaccine, getting it out, you know, manufacturing it and, and getting it out in an equitable way across uh, the globe is going to be extremely challenging. So I think that's the first thing we need to, to, to have, have in mind that any prediction now, I think, yes, is, is, is extremely uh, risky and, 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 and almost, almost irresponsible. So, but, so we, we, we need to take in uh, what that means, uh, that uncertainty. I think when we come out of this, of course, there, there will be a lot of legacy and the legacy in terms of the economy, legacy in terms of politics, legacy socially. And, and I think the, the upside there is that we will maybe be able to write, rewrite some social contracts. I mean, of the type that, that um, Beate was uh, alluding to, but I think even more importantly in, in countries that are, you know, where, where these social contracts have been very unequal and, 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 and not very inclusive. And I think that's something that, you know, that's the positive side of this, if we can, can, can see that. And, and of course, this crisis, particularly in uh, emerging and uh, developing countries, bring out these inequities and, and look at what's playing out in India now when, you know, where large parts of the population who are completely unprotected to, to the virus, while other groups are, are living in protected areas and can benefit from lockdowns and so on to reduce the risk of them being exposed themselves. So, you know, we, these things will come out and, and I think what the, the best we can hope for is that these will actually result in, in, in real changes that um, will improve the situation. Of course, there is the other possibility that we, we will see a lot of the things that, that Sergei warned about initially. And, and I'm still hopeful that, that um, there will be an, an, an upside to this, both at the national level and at the, the global level, that we will take away some important lessons and, and uh, you know, be willing to put in that extra capital that's needed, that extra um, uh, care that is needed to, to get these uh, institutions uh, stronger, both the international institutions and the national institutions. Thank you, Eric. Nick. Uh, I agree with Beata and Eric that forecasting is difficult because there could be a very bad outcome. We could, a couple of years from now, uh, be in a deep slump with a lot of, fract a lot of fractiousness, very uh, nasty politics, both domestic and international. Or we could have 
treatment and a vaccine and be able to move around and travel and uh, revive our economies. And we could have acted wisely and collaboratively and set off on a much more attractive path of growth. We could have understood that the old normal was deeply dangerous, destructive, unequal, fragile. And we could have set off on a much better path. So I don't want to say what the probabilities of each outcome, uh, of those outcomes would be, but I do want to say that it's our job and the job of the international institutions, including the EBRD, including the academics and so on, to try to push the probability in favour of the better outcome. Thank you. Thank you. Beato, the future's in our hands. Well, at the risk of repeating what has been said, right, there is a pessimistic scenario of economic nationalism living with populists in glorious ignorance, which is bad news for climate change. And then there's this optimistic scenario when the COVID exposes incompetence of populist leaders, um, there is restored faith in experts, there is depoliticizing of some decisions, delegation to experts, that's good news for climate change and stronger international cooperation. And I hope that the odds will shift towards the optimistic scenario. And I hope that we all can contribute in some small way towards it. It's good to end on a sentence which has the word optimistic in it uh, and optimism. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you to the four of you uh, for what was a fascinating discussion. Thank you, by the way, for the hundreds of questions that we got. I'm sorry we could only uh, do a small fraction of those, but uh, I'm glad uh, as an audience that you sent them in. Though I was reading them all and there were so many that we could have asked. Um, lots of insights here. Uh, it is the first in what we hope will be a series of discussions on coronavirus and the global economy. Uh, this talk was produced, this discussion in partnership with the Institute of Global Affairs at the London School of Economics. Uh, we'll be posting a podcast of today's sessions later. You can download it on iTunes uh, and remember reviewing it and rating it will help others to find it. Uh, from me, Jonathan Charles, from all of our panel, until next time, uh, stay safe. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD and the Institute of Global Affairs at LSE.